Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. I hope everyone's having a lovely summer and enjoying themselves. For those of you who may not have seen my last podcast, I highly recommend checking that one out as well. It features Mad Barn's Scott Seasler and we talk about alternatives to forage um, if there is a hay shortage. So it's a pretty interesting discussion as it talks about options in less than ideal situations where you might have less access to hay and what kind of options you have to fulfill horses forage requirements without having tons and tons of access to hay. So it's a pretty interesting discussion and we get into a few different things on equine nutrition. So I recommend checking that one out. Um, Anyways, we'll jump right into this one in a second. The other thing I wanted to let everyone know is that the pre-orders for the rose gold bridles are coming in in over the next week. So those will start to ship out and any overages we have, like if there's any extra quantities, those will hit the website and they will be sold until sold out and then we'll eventually have the full restocking and official release of the rose gold bridles that isn't pre-orders so if you haven't pre-ordered and you're interested in getting one I would definitely head to the website as soon as they're live as there probably won't be very many quantities available um I also have several new base layer colors uh, being released onto the website that you can check out. There's a rose gold collection coming out, and I also have some really nice summer riding shirts that are released in some base layer colors that are also released right now. There's lots of fun apparel options, and um, I highly recommend checking it out. I've tried to keep the prices affordable. We've also restocked all of the original Milo and Harlow bridles, so those are available for purchase from the website as well. So if you're interested in getting one of those and you missed the last restocking, they are now back and available. I highly recommend checking out those products. You can go to the Amore Equestrian website and go to the milestone page to shop my products. It's A-M-O-R-E equestrian.ca. So thank you for that. And now we'll jump right into it. So I wanted to talk about like a lot of my podcasts are kind of along the same lines because we're talking about common industry issues and how it contributes to our care of horses. Um, So with that, I wanted to talk about like what horses have to put up with and how We oftentimes take how stoic and patient horses are for granted. Um, And I did a Facebook post on this, like a shorter one, talking about how much horses have given to the human race as a whole and the amount that they've brought to help us advance. Because before we had machinery and all the stuff that we do now to get like heavy duty work done, we had to use horses. Like horses have taken people through war. Horses have like created entire stretches of farms throughout countrysides. They've freaking paved roadways. They've helped pull people to and from work and carts. And they've done all sorts of heavy duty, high intensive laborious things or things that are inherently scary to them. And they've done this alongside humankind and helped us advance at a rate that we wouldn't have been able to without the help of a very large, powerful animal like them. And I find how they've been, like, attached to humanity, I guess, and, like, raised in mankind um, and their place in our world rather interesting because, like, as work animals... I would go as far to argue that like horses have been used for more work stuff on a consistent basis over the last several centuries than dogs have, whereas dogs have played a more companionship role. And obviously we use service dogs and dogs for all sorts of things now where they do have jobs that they're good at. And that's also very good. But horses have worked for us in like a different sense, because with dogs from the very beginning, when we were like taming and domesticating dogs, it wasn't as much taken by force, whereas horses didn't really get a say in the matter. There wasn't really rewards or treats involved or trying to befriend them in the same way that would have been with dogs. With horses, it was more so like we captured them and forced them to exist alongside us. And then all of the training and care pertaining to them, I think, comes out of that mindset. And we still see that very, very connected to the treatment and societal view of horses today, because there is still this very, very pervasive mindset that horses are like these big, strong, dumb animals who you can be mean to and who you can get after because they're less able to feel pain and they don't have the brain capacity to really be upset. But now we know that they're like these highly intelligent, emotional beings that have IQ capacity that is not at all dissimilar to dogs, which people respect as highly intelligent animals. And there's a lot more respect towards dogs in our culture in that, like, if you mistreated a dog to anywhere near the same degree as horses, you're far, far more likely to get called out on it. Whereas the degree of mistreatment you can do to a horse publicly without it raising huge alarm bells or actually getting you in trouble is pretty absurd. Like, there's been some pretty high-profile cases of abuse that, in the grand scheme of things, the person committing the abuse doesn't really get in that much trouble and there's a lot of normalized training practices that are entirely reliant on scaring the crap out of horses or causing them discomfort 
And I think all that comes from our use of them because horses didn't really get to consent to their entire use over the course of humanity. And the problem is now that horses are like a luxury, like people have their horses and they want them as like their friends, they're their buddies, their horses are their companions and they want them to be like their sports team partner and they want their horse to enjoy what they do and they can't like hearing the idea that their horse might not want to participate or that what they're doing to their horse might not be fully fair is very difficult for these people to take in because the horse is no longer just a tool to them. It had the horses become like a higher purpose and they've become teammates in a way. But the problem is within that team, there's still a very, very unequal power dynamic that is completely going in the favor of the person. Because if the horse says no, if the horse expresses discomfort or says not today, they don't really often have the choice to actually do that. Like if they say a hard no, they're likely to get punished for it or called stubborn or called naughty and just forced to go through it. Um, and this isn't me saying that any cases of, like, pushing your horse through something is, like, abusive and bad, but, like, the degree that we've taken it to means that there's a lot of cases where horses are exercising their right to say no and, like, trying to tell their people, like, I'm not comfortable with this, like, something's wrong, and then being ignored because it is so ingrained in our culture as, like, and riding with training horse and training horses to just ignore it and push through and get after the horse. And we've created this entire school of thought that, like, horses deliberately engage in unwanted behaviors just to be bad and just to get out of work. Uh, and it's such an interesting mindset because if you think about it, like a lot of the same people who say their horse loves their job are insistent on the idea that horses will deliberately do things to get out of work or be stubborn or be naughty. And it's like, if your horse loves their job, then why are they doing that? If you think they're doing it on purpose and you're also saying they love their job, where's the logic there? Because if they're deliberately doing things to get out of work and be naughty, that doesn't, in that, that's not an indicator of loving what they're doing because they shouldn't be wanting to get out of it. Uh, so it's kind of like it conflicts with the, the two issues conflict with each other because an animal that loves their job shouldn't be actively trying to get out of it. And similarly, um, if you want your animal to love their job, why are you getting mad at them when they tell you that they're scared or they're not ready for them for something or not ever rewarding them? Like, where is the incentive for these animals to enjoy their jobs? I don't really think there is one because very few people are rewarding their horses and by nature like what people need to understand about negative reinforcement like pressure and release is not a bad thing the problem is that in our culture we overuse pressure and we escalate it to a punishing point oftentimes but in addition to that like pressure and release like if you're just looking at like the core of like how it actually works is it's the relief it's relief that that is the re reinforcer relief from something that the horse finds aversive or unpleasant and the degree of unpleasantness doesn't have to be so bad that the horse is in constant distress but it is relief from an aversive so rather than it actually be rewarding they're just getting relief from something that they'd prefer not to have around so that provides very little incentive for the actual act of doing these things to be super enjoyable for them and in addition to the mindset surrounding pressure and release there's also this idea that horses can only learn through pressure and release because that's how they exist in a herd setting when that's not really the case like horses have a very very nuanced ability to communicate with each other and they give a lot of warnings before they even do anything that would be considered a punisher and a lot of the signals that they give are actually distance distance increasing signals and they're viewed as like the horse correcting behaviors in other horses um and people will use that to defend their own corrections being highly physical because they'll be like oh horses kick each other way harder in the field but for people that have actually studied equine behavior or seen what a healthy herd of horses look like, they would know that kicks happen very, 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 very seldom in the herd. Most of the time it's just warnings and having like a full kick where the horse is actually getting hit and connected in a way that causes pain is typically not a common thing at all in a healthy herd. Horses much prefer warning. Um, there's a study that I read on it in school. I can't remember exactly the figure, but it was something like 70 to 80% of uh, signals were that would be viewed as like aggressive by people were actually distance increasing signals by horses that resulted in absolutely no physical connection. So horses would bite at the air, they'd threaten to kick, they'd pin their ears and snake their necks, but they're never actually connecting. It is just a warning. And the problem with people is that we don't really give good warnings when we're correcting a behavior. And we're also not showing the horse the right thing to do. Whereas horse 
horses innately know the correct thing to do in a herd if they're properly socialized. Like they learn their place in the herd and they can exist in that capacity because they can communicate with each other more freely. With us, they can't do that. Our communication doesn't come off across the same as a horse. They know we're not horses. So anything that we do is never going to be perceived the same way. So it's insanely problematic when people use how horses interact with each other to justify their treatment of their horses, especially when you factor in how bad welfare is on the in the horse world on a large scale like the degree of welfare issues that result in horse horse aggression or horse to human aggression is insane like it's such a large occurrence that i would argue the vast majority of boarding stables or training barns you go to would have at least a few horses that are showing signs of behavioral deficit and like welfare deficit uh, and behavioral issues within a herd so the problem with this is that a lot of people learn incorrect ideas of how horses communicate because they are only watching disordered behavior like they're they grow up watching so much disordered behavior and never seeing like healthy normal behaviors that disordered starts to feel like normal and it results in people having a really hard time grasping the idea that perhaps we are doing something wrong and there is a need for change um but like I said, I think this all kind of comes back to how we domesticated horses and what their use was for us. Because since they were work tools and they were expected to like maintain these jobs and be hardworking animals that needed to go to work and do things to get things done for people or that people relied on to feed their families and live and just do the bare minimum, like whether or not they're sore or they're like protesting, they still have to do their jobs. So even if people empathized with their lack of desire to work or the fact that the horse was sore, it was out of necessity where you'd start to push through that and just ignore it. So I feel like part, at least in part, it might just be entirely people being naive, but I think at least in part, it was a dissonance that started so that people didn't have to feel bad about making an animal work through situations that they knew in their heart were not okay. So they started to create these ideas in training to make those behaviors easier to accept and let go and not feel guilty about when your horse is saying no. Like if you'd make it out to be, oh, your horse is just playing games and being a brat or they do stuff on purpose just to be naughty sometimes, it's easier not to feel bad when you're kicking them on and pushing them through it when it could be a pain behavior. If you're telling yourself, oh, they're just joking around, they're being naughty, there's no way they can be in pain. When you kick on or you punish them for it, you don't feel as guilty. And then this has been an issue that has come into our culture as like, people using horses for pleasure and competition and so much of what we know about horses is rooted in like what we did to try to make them functional as work animals like even stuff like shoeing practices like shoes came about to be used to help horses keep up with the demands of work and we kept horses in a domesticated environment without having an idea of how the hoof structure actually functioned and through what we fed the horses and how we worked them and the demands of the work were the material of the ground that they were working on their natural structures of their hooves that might have been successful at helping them live in like grasslands and plains couldn't hold up to the work that people were asking of them. So then we created stuff like shoes. And this was done at a time where we had no idea how the horse's internal hoof structure worked and we had no idea of the complexity of the hoof whatsoever. So then we have these practices that have gone on for centuries now and that people have just largely accepted as the norm because like everyone does it. And even at so many barns, it's just normal to slap shoes on a horse whether they need it or not because it's just the idea that every horse in work needs shoes and that if they don't have shoes, you're somehow neglecting them. Like some people might not have heard this mindset, but in like the competition field and like the pleasure riding field and like where you're boarding a horse and you're using them as like a pleasure competitive mount and enjoying them in that way, it's so common for people to just be insistent that they need shoes whether or not the horse actually shows evidence of that or not. So this mindset has been ongoing for like centuries and it's resulted in a lot of like practices being taken and continued on despite the fact that they're largely not functional. And a lot of horse people experience issues with their horses, be it behavioral or physical and soundness wise, where they're not happy with how their horse is behaving and it's frustrating and they don't know what's going on. Maybe they can't get them sound. And it's this vicious cycle where you're getting so frustrated about everything you have to deal with. But it's a self-fulfilling prophecy with how you're causing a lot of your own problems. Like a lot of soundness issues are linked to hoof care and how we handle horses feet and the normalized shoeing practices. Like by now, what we know about like humans biomechanically and like how we create sporting wear for humans and like shock absorbing runners for humans, you would think it would be a no-brainer that like steel is not a shock absorbing material and that it increases concussion 
But for whatever reason, a large portion of people still believe that shoes somehow provide shock absorption, and that's why horses are more sound in them. And they don't realize that shoes actually impede the ability of the hoof to absorb shock and actually function as it is supposed to correctly. Um, and of course, this isn't like all shoes, but like the traditional shoeing practices with like open heeled steel shoes are linked to a lot of problems. And a lot of the soundness issues that we're experiencing, I firmly believe would be rectified or at least drastically reduced if we started to really reform the shoeing practice. Um, but, but with farriery, like with other aspects of the horse world, there's a lot of pushback to this growth because people don't want to change what they've always known. Like a lot of farriers like hitting metal. They like forging stuff and they've learned how to work metal and might not have learned how to work on like composite shoes and some of the other better alternatives to metal. And they might not want to change. And people are so resistant to change that in order to try to avoid change, they defend things that are actually like harming the animals that they love. And it's really sad because you see all these issues that are ongoing and they're causing horses and humans so much stress and grief, but then the very things that need to be addressed to actually fix them aren't being properly addressed and they're being swept under the rug and ignored. And it's doing all of our horses a disservice, but it's also doing us a disservice because we have these goals and these things that we want to do, but then we are directly damaging our ability to get there by continuing to do things that just aren't overly successful. Like, even with a traditional pressure and release training program, the amount of wastage that there is in horses or horses that develop behavioral problems in the average program or horses that can't cope with it and end up getting, like, pawned off. Like, if you're looking at trainers that get in horses from breeding farms and stuff, there's a fair number of horses who will go through those training programs that will get ruled off as just being crazy or like unwanted or difficult or not being able to succeed. And it's not because the horses themselves are useless. It's because the horses couldn't keep up at the rate the training program is expecting them to. And then they get blamed for not doing it. So a lot of horses who get fried and are ruled as dangerous or unsuitable are horses that would have been totally fine if they just had things done a bit differently in their management or their training or their care. And they're not appropriately having these health issues dealt with. Um, and it's sad because we've taken these animals who are like so passive and highly emotional and if anything they seek to try to find harmony and move away from discomfort and stressful situations. They don't seek to be aggressive or establish dominance or do anything like maliciously. Like they're animals that very much seek the path of least resistance. They don't want to cause problems. But we've created this mindset where we're labeling them as these creatures that like intentionally do things with the the intention of being like a jerk to their people or trying to dominate their people and trying to be the alpha and showing them who's boss or just to like disrupt what the person's goals are and just be a shithead and then we label them as all of these things and if you're looking at things through the lens of this horse is doing this to piss me off it's a lot easier to get really mad at them because you're taking it so personally and then if you're feeling personally attacked you're responding to the horse like they personally attacked you when they have no idea what's going on and then the problem with this is that the horse has no context of their situation. And this is the really sad thing about all of the practices that we normalize. Because if you flipped the roles and started doing these things to people without any explanation or any context, and the people or beings doing all these things to you couldn't speak your language and couldn't explain it to you and didn't really have the patience or time to even try to because they just ignore a lot of your deliberate attempts at communication. And imagine you start like freaking out and getting louder and louder with your communication because you're being ignored and you're just trying to get them to listen and then they get mad at you for that. It's a situation where it's very hard to actually imagine a creature being able to thrive and be happy in it because when they're upset, their communication gets ignored and punished um, and they have to get louder and louder and louder if they're getting ignored. And then when they get too loud, it's viewed as a huge problem and then they'll get sent to like a cowboy or they'll get sent to an auction or they'll get in lots and lots of trouble. But their quieter attempts at communication and attempts at asking for help are ignored. So people don't want to deal with the louder attempts, but then they're also not willing to listen to the quieter attempts or actually look within themselves and see how they might be contributing to a horse's behavior. And 
For example, like, can you imagine if you were, like, in a personal training program, let's say you have, like, parents, you're underage, so you don't have full control over your living situation or what you get to do. Your parents put you in a sporting program. They don't explain the rules to you. They don't actually teach you how to do the sport. They just start forcing you to do things and trying to, like, forcibly manipulate your body by using certain gadgets or making you do certain exercises. And when you say, oh, this hurts, this is too much, I can't stretch that far, they ignore you and just keep going. That wouldn't be an environment that anyone is likely to thrive in and actually enjoy being a part of because you'd feel like you're getting pushed out of your comfort zone constantly and not listened to and you're being put in situations where you're prone to injury and this is what we do to horses on a rampant basis and it's so frustrating to watch unfold especially now that I've like been on both sides because I actually I actively contributed to a lot of the things that I'm criticizing right now and that I have across the board. But it's frustrating to watch because I can only imagine, like, if horses are willing to do as much as they do for us right now when their needs are often not fully met and where it's, like, less common to actually see horses in, like, competitive lifestyles that are getting all of their species-specific needs met, if horses are still willing to perform as they do and do as much as they do when their needs aren't being met and when they're in discomfort and when they're mentally unsound and also physically unsound, imagine what they would do if we actually gave them an incentive to want to work for us and made their lives more full and met more of the needs that they have like they would be less difficult to deal with they'd be more willing and they'd have more drive to do it like if we can get them to jump a meter 60 fence by using pressure and just forcing them to do it imagine how much they would do if you're incentivizing them through reward and stuff that they actually want to seek because they'll do stuff through force when there's arguably nothing in it for them so if we make there be something in it for them what they'll do and like what we can do in training and how safe they'll be, there's really no bounds. And even that aside, if you don't want to go into the whole positive reinforcement program, there's ways to use pressure and release in ways where there's a lot better timing and where you're not like gagging and forcing your horse to respond. But like at an industry scale, I really don't think that as horse people, we can say that we love our horses and we have their best interests at heart when horse people so often respond with anger when they're forced to consider biases that might be long-standing traditions in the horse world or forced to consider training methods or certain care practices be criticized as new information comes out. Like if you respond with anger and start getting mad at people for sharing information about traditional open-heeled metal shoes and start trying to defend why your horse needs them instead of considering the information and considering that even if your horse needs shoes, maybe there's a better, safer option for them that's better for soundness. Like If the motivation is actually for the horse, there needs to be no ego involved because if there's a better way of doing things that could make your horse respond better in training and also just be easier to deal with and make them happier, then isn't that something that anyone wants to consider? And it's confusing to me because, like, a lot of people say they'll do anything for their horse until anything means considering something that they initially didn't believe in or that they've been told is not a thing. And so many of us have had these preconceived ideas drilled into our heads from such a young age or from such a young experience level in the horse world that it's really, really hard to undo them. And holding on to that is so dangerous because it, it, it impacts growth. And like, I, I regret a lot of the things that I did and I was naive and I believed a lot of people and it made me realize how many people will say things like they're super, super qualified and like they know so much when they really have no idea. Like I effectively watched people for years destroy Milo's feet and tell me that it was fine and use justifications for why he needed to be in shoes and really drill the idea that horses need shoes into my head and that some horses just cannot go barefoot and it's impossible um and it was a way of justifying what they were doing and making up excuses for what they were unable to do as farriers uh because i learned pretty quickly how drastically a better diet and better trimming could change his his hooves and his overall well-being and we're still on a path of like fixing that which is the really frustrating part because i can only imagine where we would be now if i never went wrong in the first place and if i'd found the right type of role model to help me with his feet rather than going down the path that I did but I'm glad that I've done this now because like it's really really sad to see like how many horses get career-ending injuries or who get mentally fried because they can't keep up with like the demands and the treatment of the programs that they're in and because horse people refuse to consider how they might be contributing to it. There are so many practices in the horse world that are so normalized that at their core are just so harmful and aren't factoring in the best interests of the horse and like it's about time we start being honest with ourselves what we're actually 
actually doing because like things like shooing the horse to the nines to try to make them sound because their feet are so crocked that they can't be sound without like a wedge pad and like like sole pad and all sorts of special rehab shoes shooing them in that way and pretending it's solely for the horse when you are competing them actively and trying to jump them over fences like that it's not for the horse because the horse could rehab what the situation it's in with less or it could stay in the same shoeing situation rehab it better and work comfortably in a field not being ridden so the shoeing practices are largely to keep the horse sound for riding. It's not actually what's in the best interest for the horse. And I say this as someone who engaged in a lot of those types of shoeing practices to try to make Milo sound for the sport. It wasn't what was in his best interest. It was what would keep him sound for what I wanted to do. It wasn't for him. And even during that time, I was one of those people who'd be like, oh, my horse gets like $200 with his shoes every six weeks. Like he's so spoiled and so well taken care of. And it's like, okay, great. Yeah, you're spending lots of money on him to ruin his feet. But like, just because you're spending the money doesn't mean it's the best situation for him. And a lot of like care and shoeing and like treatment that people do, they do it with trying to say that they're just doing it to keep their horse comfortable. But the intention is too often related to just keeping the horse usable for the level of riding the person we'd like to use them at. Like, even if we want to look at like joint injections, like corticosteroids, so, so, so many vets will just inject into joints blindly. Your horse is lame and you take them to the vet, they'll be like, oh yeah, he's been a little bit off in his hocks. They'll just inject the hocks. They don't even know what is actually causing the lameness. They just inject a corticosteroid into the joint, despite the fact that it can break down the joint over time and doesn't actually solve the problem. It just masks pain. So if there is something going on that is a chronic issue that can get worse, you inject into the joint, you mask the horse's ability to feel the pain, and then they're going to wear down that area even more because they're no longer protecting themselves. It is such an irresponsible practice, and it is rooted in people wanting to use horses for sport and get them into sport as quickly as possible, or back into sport as quickly as possible or continue competing them at the levels as as long as they can it's not actually for the horse's best interest because if you're actually treating an injury or a lameness issue you need to find out what you're treating in order to actually decide what the best course of action is putting something that masks pain into your horse and then continuing to compete them is irresponsible at best because you don't know what you're treating for all you know it could be a soft tissue injury that needs rest and then you're masking the pain and continuing on and putting high risk of having the horse just completely blow up and have a career-ending injury. And we see this happening to so many horses at all levels of sport where they're just career-ending unsound and can no longer be ridden because they've been run into the ground. And it's because we deprive horses of every ability to tell us when they're uncomfortable physically because we mask their pain with chemicals or we sedate them or we do things like lunging the crap out of them using types different types of riding and training equipment to prevent behaviors that might stem from discomfort and do everything we can to gag communication and then it effectively makes the horse completely unable to protect themselves when they know that there's something physically not right with them or when they know that they're uncomfortable and if we stop doing this, we would be more able to actually treat the issues that are causing horses to behave certain ways. And it would also make it so that horses are able to communicate their pain better so that they're not running themselves into the ground and through injuries. In addition to this, the fact that someone holds a vet license doesn't necessarily mean they're always making the right decisions for your horse. Uh, a vet is a professional. This isn't me saying people should do their own vet care, but a vet that is willing to treat a joint issue without x-raying at first and actually properly diagnosing what they are looking at and they're going to use a steroid injection that can degrade the joint over time and is highly invasive and will mask pain even if it's an injury that needs to be rest or needs surgery any vet that does that they're making a decision that is masking the pain from the horse without actually diagnosing the issue vets don't have x-ray vision they don't so if they're not going to x-ray they should err on the side of caution and choose something less invasive than that like, the vet that I use is not really on board with corticosteroid injections unless they're truly the best option because she knows that it results in a lot of horses being competed past the physical capabilities that their bodies are allowing them to be at. And then once these horses are done, they might not even be able to have a nice retirement where they're actually fully comfortable because their body has been used up to such a degree without their knowledge or intention because their pain has been masked that they can no longer be as comfortable as they could in retirement. And it's just, it's not fair and it's not, you, you can't seriously say as like an animal lover and advocate that it's for the best interest of the animal if the priority is making the animal suited and fit to the sport that you want to do. And as a trainer and like a rider and someone who 
used to defend these types of things. Like, it's really hard for me to watch this attitude because it just infuriates me because I see all of the holes. Like, there's so many holes in their arguments and their justifications, and so much of their argument is rooted in just putting down the other side and talking about how high caliber their horse is and how other people don't understand because their horses are just cheap or they've not competed at that level and that high caliber athletes need joint care and that if people aren't doing it, that they're not caring for their horses properly. And it becomes an us versus them mentality where they're insulting other people to try to justify what they're doing instead of actually like being like, yeah, my horse is getting this, this, and that because he has this diagnosis and this is the best situation. Uh, Joint injections shouldn't be viewed as like necessary care for horses just because they're in sport. How, like, I, I was an athlete my whole childhood. I've rid- ridden my whole life, um, and I've competed at, like, fairly high levels in, like, riding on a regular basis and ridden high-caliber, like, athlete horses that are difficult to ride and taxing on the body. I've never gotten joint injections, even though I've had joint pain, because I've had no reason to. I've had my knees x-rayed, and there's nothing wrong with them, and if I started pumping my knees full of corticosteroids, sure, it might make them less sore, but it's going to degrade the joint over time, and it's going to set me up for worse success in the future. A lot of horses that are athletes might have natural instances of discomfort or pain or soreness that come with being an athlete and they might need to be rested sometimes or they might need their training program to be slowed down and that is just part of being an athlete the answer isn't drugging them and trying to mask the pain or using using medical methods that serve to potentially deprive your horse of a happy retirement or as long of a life as they deserve and This also plays into, like, with what I said with shoes. Like, we know that a lot of shoeing practices and how we ride and care for horses now are really linked to, like, navicular problems and issues in the hoof. Uh, There's a huge link between, like, modern hoof care and, like, modern management of horses and these things. Like, there's a reason why these problems are seen so often in domesticated horses and in shod horses. And there's, like, several vets that now that are coming out completely in support of barefoot because of how they're noticing how many lameness issues are associated with shod horses. So it shows a need for, like, immediate change in how we shoe and how we believe in training and caring for horses uh but a lot of people are in denial of that and it's like I don't know if you love your horse and your horse is your number one which most people will say they'll say I love my horse to death my horse is the love of my life I like horses over everything right if that's the truth if there is anything you could do to make them live longer or be sounder or be happier and it's something that is well within your means to do and that there's really credible research surrounding, you should consider it at the very least. Um, I'm sure if you go back into my post, you can find times where I said Milo could never go barefoot and that he needed shoes and I pulled the same arguments that I see a lot of people make and that I now roll my eyes at and he is going to be going back into shoes temporarily so that we can knock his toe back way more without making him really uncomfortable because his angles were so shot and like over years he got so run forward and had the toe grow so long that even though his angles are better now, the toe is still too long and he grows so fast that he either needs to be done on like a two to four week schedule or he needs to get like the different shoes so we can really cut them back right away and then keep on it and yeah he's gonna get these like open toed heel like duplo shoes so that you can rasp the toe back as it grows as well and really keep on top of it but I'm not going to be putting him into metal shoes and I'm certainly not going to be putting him into shoes without frog support again because that's what ruined his feet and in addition to that like if he's foot sore I'm not like putting him into work and I'm not trying to like I don't know like I've had people be like, oh, why don't you just inject his coffin bones? And I'm like, why the fuck would I? He has x-rays and his x-rays are fine. Hell, he's had an MRI and his MRI is fine. The fact that he's still sore is an indicator that his angles are not quite there or that his body needs to be healing better. Um, why would I stick a needle in him when his body is not telling me that it needs to based off of the clinical findings, especially if it could cause him more issues than not? So... I think it's about adapting with the times because honestly, like, there's so many better shoeing options out there now and there's so many better, like, training options out there and there's so much research out there now to show the validity behind a lot of these things. Whereas on the flip side, there's very little other than anecdotes and, like, personal biases that support a lot of modern horse care and training practices in terms of efficacy and ethicality and, like, overall safety and soundness for the horses. A lot of what people go off of for, like, these traditional shoeing practices or traditional stable management, like, stall 
stalling horses too much or isolating them is solely based off of their anecdotal experience. And they'll use excuses like, oh, well, my horses have all needed shoes, which doesn't factor in that the horses could all have the same diet and the same care practices that make them lame, not in shoes, and that they're not having the factors addressed to not need shoes. Or, oh, my horses, like, some horses hate other horses and they're aggressive and they can't go out with other horses. That doesn't factor in how disordered of a behavior that is and how that behavior might have came to be from lack of socialization. It's using the behavior existing as an excuse to continue the treatment that likely caused the behavior in the first place. And again, there's very little, like, find me a study that says horses like being alone better and that some horses just prefer isolation and are totally fine and there's no stress deficit or any behavioral issues associated with it. If you can find one that is actually stating that there is, like, a preferential thing or that there's a certain gene that horses can have that makes them lone wolves instead of herd animals, I will read it, but if you can't do that, then accept the fact that you are probably making up a story to align with your personal biases, so you don't have to acknowledge the fact that your care isn't as perfect as you might have thought it to be initially. And here's the thing, you don't have to have perfect care. It's okay to be wrong. We're taught how to do things wrong on such a massive scale that it's hard to actually do everything right in this current climate in the horse world, but you can't start to do things right and you can't self-improve at the degree that you should be if you're lying to yourself. It's okay not to do everything right, but the idea that people's anecdotal inf- anecdotal information overrides credible, scientifically researched information is absurd because anecdotes, anecdotes and your personal opinion is, first of all, it's entirely reliant on your perception of horse behavior, and if you have no formal education on how to read horse behavior, there's a very, very good chance that your perception of horse behavior is skewed, at least in some way, and in a lot of ways probably very skewed because there is a a lot of studies that have depicted a lot of horse people as being far less able to read equine behavior than they believe to be. So that's the first problem with anecdotal experience, is that you're going off of your unprofessional opinion of what horse behavior looks like rather than tested, researched, unbiased Um, perception of horse behavior that has no ego involved because the equine scientists that are studying them they have so many steps to eliminate bias in their studies that they're even if they do have their own level of personal bias they're taking far more steps than the average person so they are more they're they're less biased than the average person in their personal opinion with their ego so that, that's the huge thing is your personal perception of how your horse behaves or why they do things is based off of what you know and what you've learned. And if you're already denying the validity of scientifically researched information, you're probably in denial about other things. So anecdotes really don't play a role to override scientific information in that regard, especially if you're using it to completely write off any validity of it. Like, if it's a smaller sample size, you could go, well, in my anecdotal experience, I've noticed this. So, I'll keep that in mind, but I'm going to just see how the study progresses. Sure. But with, like, shoeing studies and with the studies on, like, turnout and stuff, there's enough stuff that we have research-wise to make it a very, very educated opinion to err on the side of science uh, because there's a lot of behavioral problems and physical problems that are associated with, like, shoeing practices or lack of turnout that are showing up on a consistent basis across the horse world and that, if you're being honest with yourself, even within your anecdotes, are also confirmed in anecdotes because, Just go walk through as many boarding barns as you can that do the stall paddock turnout situation. Count how many behavioral issues you see. Be honest with yourself when you're actually seeing stereotypic vices. And then go walk through areas where horses are out full-time on turnout and herds and count how many of the same stereotypic behaviors you see. That's one way with your anecdotes to actually prove where the scientific direction is pointing to be correct. If you're being honest with yourself again. But a lot of people like ruling their horse's stress behaviors as quirks rather than addressing them and having them disappear. And look, some horses do have stress quirks that might not ever be rectified. For example, Milo at feed time does this weird thing with his mouth where it's like an anxious oral fixation behavior that he does around like feeding time. And he's done it since he was very young and it's probably what he did to try to like bide time and like de-stress when he was starving and had nothing to eat. And it's gotten less over time, but he still does it. But it's a stress behavior. I'm not just going to go, oh, haha, that's, that's how he is. That's perfectly normal. No, it's a stress behavior that 
has come out of him being an unideal care as a baby. And even with how he resource guards compared to other horses, his level of resource guarding compared to a normal horse is much different because he's been given more of a reason from a young age to need to guard resources. And that's something that he's taken with him into adulthood because he learned it during such a crucial learning period. Again, that has also gotten less over the years as he's realized he doesn't need to do it, but he still does it on and off. It's not a particularly normal behavior to do it to the degree he does it because he'll get really possessive over food sometimes. And it's not normal. And if he did have any stall vices like cribbing or weaving, like that wouldn't that would also be an abnormal behavior. Your horse showing signs of stress or having abnormal behaviors doesn't mean you're a bad owner, but if you are not being honest with yourself about why those behaviors exist or what those behaviors mean, then there is room for improvement in your ownership because you at least need to be realistic about why certain things exist in care practices and training practices. And it's okay to continue to adapt. Like, I don't know, like, if your horse can go barefoot and you don't have to worry about pulled shoes and you can save money on shoes, like, why wouldn't you do it? There are so many options out there for, like, hoof boots and stuff that are better now that you can use to keep your horse sound and you can even keep them on them and turn out. And there's so many shoe options that are either glue on or nail on that have frog support and have better materials than metal. Or even if you're using a metal shoe, you can use a frog support pad to at least limit the damage. The shoe is still too rigid and doesn't allow for the hoof to flex how it should, but it's better. Like there's better options. It's about just improving. Like anyone with any average farrier can literally just go get 3D frog support pads from any farrier store, buy them for the size of your horse, and you can ask your farrier to put them on. And even just that will make the whole shoe thing do less damage than it could if there was no frog support. And it's not necessarily about like completely uprooting your life as you know it and changing all your practices immediately, but why not try little things that might point into a direction that make it better? Like if I had never tried to make Milo go barefoot, his feet would still be a complete and utter shit show and he would be so unhappy. We're only where we are because I was open to trying and seeing where it would go and I wanted to see how it would help him and it did end up helping. And then with a horse like Banksy, like if Banksy was Milo, he would have been shod by now. Milo I shot at three years old and it was the worst thing I did. It destroyed his feet. That first shoeing alone underran his heel so badly and got his toe so long that that set him on like a, on a course of having years of hoof issues that he wouldn't have had if I'd done things a little bit differently. So now I can do things better because I can go, okay, like I learned from my mistakes with him and I've realized how things that I've changed have bettered the life of my horse. And what I would say, like this isn't to sound like a dick and be pretentious or whatever, but because of like my line of work um, and how I've grown up around horses for the number of years that I have, I've had access to a lot of different horses. I've had a lot of different horses come through my training program. I've owned a lot of different horses. I've leased a lot of different horses and I've gotten to try a ton of different feeding programs and trimming programs on all different types of horses, especially thoroughbreds, which are notoriously like the number one breed people say cannot go barefoot and has bad feet. Um, but again, like the whole thoroughbred thing, like yes, breeding does play a role in hoof health, but what we're not factoring is, is that a lot of thoroughbreds go to the racetrack, which means they get their first set of shoes as like yearlings, which is more early than most sport horses do. They're also fed really high grain diets from a young age. Both of these things are highly linked to poor hoof health. Um, so there's no reason to believe that that doesn't at least play some of a role. We don't know the degree of role it plays because we haven't been able to test it and see how well horses do on forage-based and barefoot lifestyles in the racing industry. But what we do know is that there is issues linked to traditional shoeing practices and that there's also issues linked to shoeing horses young and starting them that young and how we know how big of a role the hoof plays for overall health and soundness. Like, it would be really interesting to test and see how much sounder racehorses would be even without changing the start ages or anything else if we just put them on different diets, allowed for more turnout, and kept them barefoot or didn't shoe as early and just see how it goes because I think it would really help things. People don't believe that it does, but they also don't allow for it to be proven right in front of them. And they don't value the studies that also show signs of it leading in that direction. So, I've gotten to test, like, transitioning now several off-the-track thoroughbreds barefoot, like, directly from the track, and a lot of the horses have had bad feet, and they would have been horses that people had said could never go barefoot. Like, some of them were living in pads, and people were like, this horse will never be able to go barefoot. Guess who's barefoot now? 
yeah, I'm going to be, like, the barefoot bitch just, like, making thoroughbreds go barefoot. But, like, a lot of people said it wasn't possible. And, yes, they might be tender on, like, really big rocks. But, again, there are so many hoof boot options. And there's also, like, glue-on shoes and all sorts of options to kind of sort through that and make the best option for the horse. This isn't about eradicating shoes. It's about reforming what we view shoes to be and how we put them on and how we handle the whole hoof thing because we know so much more about hooves now. And if we did this and we really started to do a huge overhaul of farrier practices, you'd probably see a huge reduction in, like, laminitis and other hoof issues um, and, like, navicular and whatnot, but we haven't actually tested this at the degree that it needs to be, and so many people are in denial of the very things that they need to accept in order to have this happen so that they can have it proven to them. So I guess this podcast is just encouraging you, like, if you read something or a study that conflicts with your personal beliefs or you're seeing people share things that make you uncomfortable, it might be worth it to look further into them if the information is coming from a credible place because if you try a little bit of something, you might find that it actually works really well and it solves problems better than you could have possibly imagined and that things you've been struggling with for years are suddenly no longer an issue. Like, the amount of behavioral issues and soundness issues and stuff that can be related to hoof health and other things or even just the management of the horse is substantial. A lot of people don't associate their horse's behavioral issues or soundness issues with the actual cause of them because they'll view it as something else. Like, the amount of times our horses would pull shoes or go lame and the amount of issues Milo had soundness wise when he had shoes was absurd. I was just more able to mask some of those issues by using shoes, but the issues were still there and they would still intermittently show up even though I tried as hard as I did to mask them. And if I dealt with them sooner, he'd be further ahead than he is now. And honestly, with like a lot of his stifle issues and the injury that he injuries he has had, I'm positive a lot of those are related to his angles and the fact that we'd shot him like his collateral ligament injury he had several years back 100% related to his hoof angles and how his shoes were I don't think that it would have happened if he had been more appropriately cared for farrier wise um on top of that like even just how he was growing up as a baby like Banksy's muscle tone and his ability to build muscle and put it on and his overall hoof health is so healthy compared to Milo because of how I'm feeding him caring for him and the lifestyle that he lives being able to walk around so many different terrains and live with other horses and go up and down hills and having been barefoot since the time he was born all of these things have facilitated in creating a really nice foundation for a riding horse Um, and, like, these are, like, other things to consider. Like, even the entire idea of horses not being out in, like, large turnout or getting to live out in herds, like, you can't really expect a horse to be sure-footed or to know how to interact with other horses if you don't allow them access to the very things they need to develop that. So, for example, a horse like Banksy, I would feel way more comfortable jumping around on a horse who has lived out in a herd on turnout and been in an environment where they can interact with the natural environment and, like, walk across different terrain and do all of that than I would be on a horse who's lived in a stall paddock situation with just flat ground and hasn't actually had to exist in a natural environment and learn how to develop, like, the stability and proprioception to walk around the natural environment and really become, like, well-developed that way. Like, horses who don't get turned out are always the worst ones to get injured because they do dumb shit in turnout because they just don't know what to do with themselves and they don't know how to protect themselves from danger. They're just get into stuff. And, like, my horses get into stuff, but honestly, like, most of their injuries are related to them investigating things that they probably shouldn't because they're just so naturally curious and bold and not afraid of things. But, like, when they're running around the field and stuff, even if obstacles come out in front of them, like, they're quick, they can turn on a dime, they can jump shit, they can dive to the side, they're fast, they know how to watch for holes, they know how to adjust to different types of footings. Um, And I would trust them way more on trails and all sorts of different things to keep me safe because of that. Um... And I think for, like, growing up from a young age, too, like, horses who grow up in herds, like, they're taught so many life skills that are important that will make them better riding horses. So, like, all of these things that we kind of take for granted or don't view as important in regular care and management of horses can actually drastically change our use of them and make them more usable and more fun to use um, and more able to do what we're asking of them. And it's, like, so frustrating to see people riding off, like, modernizing things and just shrugging it off and insisting that it's not possible just because they don't enough people doing it but like also like the degree of soundness and behavioral issues that we see in the horse world as it stands is so frequent that it's like what do you really have to lose if like so many shod horses are having lameness issues still or they're like pulling shoes or you can see 
the hoof structure degrading in front of you. And if you actually want to be honest with yourself and look at scholarly articles on what the hoof is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function, you would know that a lot of traditionally shod horses and even a lot of upper level competition horses have completely destroyed feet. And people just think that because the horses are expensive and that people put a lot of money into them, that it means that the care is good when that's not the case. They use the care that is the most normalized. They use the care that is most able to get the horse to do the job that they want. Transitioning a lot of those horses barefoot might take some time and the people might not be able to ride them. So they wouldn't do that because it doesn't serve them. So it's a lot easier just to be insistent that these practices are necessary than it is to actually look at it for what's best for the horse. Um... But that aside, like there are a lot of horses now at the upper levels that are going barefoot and the people riding them and training them are saying how much sounder they are, how much more able they are to recover after fences, how much quicker they are. And their results in the show ring are also showing this. They're, they're successful. And barefoot horses are a minority in the show world. So if you're seeing a ton of barefoot horses at the top levels, winning classes at like the meter 40, meter 50 level in show jumping... It's not just a coincidence. It's not just that you, like, they're, they're beating shod horses who've lived in shoes their whole life, and they're also getting more and more consistent as they're having shoes pulled. So the evidence is there. It just requires us to become more open-minded and really consider how we can alter things. And honestly, it's been so eye-opening for me to make the changes that I have and see, like, what's come out of that. And it's disappointing to me that I didn't make them sooner. And that's kind of why I talk about all these things. It's, it's not to degrade what people do or say it's my way to the highway. It's saying that a lot of the most normalized things in the horse world, care-wise, aren't necessarily the most effective. And there's a lot of different ways you can shoe a horse in a better way than traditional open-heeled steel shoes. There's better options to use and we have better materials now. Like, what sense does it make that we're still using essentially the exact same shoeing practices as we did hundreds of years ago when there's so many better materials now and we have a better understanding of how the hoof functions and how much it contributes to overall soundness of the horse? Like, there's really, it's a no-brainer. And... Yeah, like I'm glad that I made these these changes that I have. So I encourage people to try new things and like see like find people who are willing to try new things because like I wish I'd had like farriers and people who would be more honest with me about like what I actually needed to do to get my horses where I wanted them to be because if I'd done the harder work and kind of set back my goals and stopped looking for instant gratification, I would actually be further ahead now because my horses would be healthy and sound and as ready as they needed to be to do the things that I wanted them to do and they wouldn't be struggling with all these issues that are pertaining to care practices or shoeing practices or soundness issues or behavioral problems from discomfort, they would be bypassing all of that because I'd be addressing those things first and then we'd have a clear path to do all the things that I want them to do. So now Milo's 10 and he's still rehabbing his feet and it like based off of how he's looking now, like I don't think he'll need to go in for his arthroscopy, knock on wood, like hopefully he won't because being out on the pasture and running up and down the hill and just having this time off, time off doing that has really made his stifle stronger and he's a lot more comfortable on that and his MRI for his hoof went really, really well. I was surprised that we didn't damage his internal structures more uh, based off of how he was shot and how bad his angles were. So it was a really, really pleasant surprise. So now he's 10, but he's at a point where it's like, okay, we're finally getting on top of things and we'll have these things all ticked off and addressed and then I can start him back into work in good faith knowing that he's going to be okay and I think that'll be really good but it's like he's 10 and if I'd done this sooner and I'd been in less of a rush when he was younger I could have had a horse who's like six or seven that has excellent feet and has all the makings to kind of move up the levels in the way I wanted to be but since I rushed at like three to put him in shoes so that I could ride him because he was getting foot tender and just did what everyone else around me locally did I actually prolonged my path because I could have dealt with those things sooner and I could have been like okay like he's only three I don't need to ride him a ton this year like it's okay let's let's find someone who will help me work with this but I didn't know what I needed to know to really make that decision and I didn't realize at the time how selfishly I was making decisions but if I had done things differently it would have gone faster so this whole instant gratification thing I think is the biggest issue in the horse world because it's the reason behind so many harsh bits training gadgets starting horses at certain ages shoeing practices um, stabling them. It's all about that instant gratification and just kind of trying to fulfill a role and do what everyone else is doing and do what people think is right. Like, the horse world is so status-based, but we've, like, made the status and, like, what we view as, like, high profile or, like, expensive or good care in the horse world. It doesn't actually align with what horses need. It aligns with what people view as valuable. And we factor, like, we look at money and how much money people put into things 
and cost of things and use that as a reason to determine it as good care. Even if the money is being spent in a way where it's just to try to secure the horse's job for the person. It's not about what is in the long-term best interest of the horse. You can put tens of thousands of dollars into your horse, but if all that money is put into masking soundness issues so you can continue bumping them up the levels and riding the shit out of them, You've put lots of money into the horse, but the care itself hasn't been good because it's been done selfishly for personal benefit, not for the horse's long-term soundness. So funds spent on something or like how famous someone is or how expensive the horse is, that's not an indicator of care. That's not a good standard of care, especially when there's also trends that depict higher levels of stress associated with upper level competition horses, which honestly shouldn't be that surprising because it's more justified to have them living isolated and away from other horses and also on high grain diets and also in like shoes. Um, than it is for like a cheaper horse. But a lot of people will use status to be like, oh, well, horses at the upper levels, like obviously their care is good. And my question is like, why are you assuming just because people have money that they have ethics in mind? Like what industry can you honestly think where the amount of money someone has is actually correlated with how good of a person they are? All of the richest people in the world are probably some of the shittiest people ever because if you're a good person, you couldn't amass as much wealth as they have and hold on to it and not feel bad about it. Like, money and your ability to throw money at things does not mean you're a good person and you're making good decisions. And if you are of the type to try to use money as a justification for why something is good, you're probably in it for the wrong reasons because money is the last thing you should be thinking of. It has no indication of something's quality. What people are willing to pay is just what they're willing to pay. Sure, some expensive things might be more quality, but it's not an indicator of like ethicality or soundness. There's no correlation. So if you find yourself using money or like prestige or how high someone competes as a reason to justify their care practice, if that's all you have, there's probably not a whole lot to defend there. Money has no meaning. There's so many shitty rich people who do terrible things to people and animals animals. Being willing to spend lots of money when it serves you or benefits you in some way does not mean that the money was spent with the best interests of another creature in mind. Let's get real here. Um, but yeah, like, I guess that's my rant because it's just frustrating to see the resistance to change and like how clearly some of these trends are showing and like how clearly, like when you look at like the photos and the infographics, especially on things like hoof health or like how horses are supposed to live and like learn about it from like the scientific perspective and actually have it explained to you and like listed off like why these things are a thing and the credible information behind it and the amount of research behind it and how this has been discovered, it's really hard to ignore the validity of that. And it's really sad to me that so many people who claim to love their horses aren't willing to consider how they can make their horses' lives better or how they can continue improving. Because we always talk as equestrians like how you never stop learning in the horse world, but if that's true, then why are so many people so quick to just write off the validity of science? Um, and usually when you get really defensive about something, it's because the part of you is reacting in a way where you're like, I realize there's something going on here that's wrong. And that's kind of how I felt with Milo's hooves because a lot of people would comment on them in the past and I felt like a trapped animal because I was trying so many different farriers and doing all the things people suggested to me and all the things that like the industry was telling me were right to try to help him, but it wasn't the right thing. And I just needed to find the right type of, um, like, I guess, niche to get into where I'd have more access to people sharing those scientific articles because a lot of people on like the traditional side of things are actually tr working to mask that information and not share it because it makes them uncomfortable. So when I was really involved in like the traditional horse world and around show people, I never really saw stuff being like the studies and whatnot and like the infographics and whatnot being shared to the same degree I do now because people had motivation to hide those things because those things criticized what they were actively engaging in. Um, so yeah, like just something to consider, like new research is always going to come out and it's like up to us to be open to hearing it because honestly, like if we were more open-minded and willing to try new things, especially credible, credibly research things, like we could get through so many issues with our horse that are long-standing or horses that are long-standing issues otherwise. Like I wish I'd been more open-minded sooner. So like trying a little bit of something and seeing if it works, what you got to lose if it's a scientifically founded thing and actually has merit, you know? So I don't know. 
that's my rant for the day. I just kind of wanted to go off a little bit about that because it's just so hard to watch online sometimes and just see the level of denial and people just sticking their heads in the sand. And it's at the expense of so many horses. And like, I could see how huge the improvement would be if we just made some of these things that are fairly minor changes. Because like, even if people didn't pull the shoes off, if everyone just started being like, horses need frog support for the hoof to function normally and started to shoe with that in mind and we started to use materials that were more flexible to allow for that shock absorption there'd be such a big change and it's not even like it's still doing the same practice you're still getting the same things but you're doing it in a way that's more consistent with what horses need so like why not try it um but yeah like I think I'm done with that now like um so yeah that's that for today like just just consider scientific information guys there's lots to learn and there's so much misinformation we're taught and I know I've talked about this same or similar topic a lot of times but it's truly the largest issue in the horse world is the lack of desire to want to grow at the times because if we had that desire a lot of the issues that are long-standing issues in the horse world would at least be on the path to getting better rather than still getting defended um yeah. Anyways, I posted a new YouTube video the other day. It's a life update. I'm talking about some big changes that are happening. Like I have to move soon. So there's going to be some pretty big things coming up. Um, and it's been really, really busy and hectic. So if you're interested in hearing what's going on with my horses in detail and like interested about the move and stuff, I recommend going out and checking on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's just my name, Shelby Dennis. You can look it up there um, and watch it there. Uh, as I said in the beginning of this too, I also have a ton of new products that are being released. I'm trying to get a bunch moved this summer because since we are moving, I just really need to downsize and get stuff moved and a lot of my income is in products. So if you are interested and you want to get some nice gear, please check it out. It would immensely help me um, and help my business get established and I hope that you'd also get something that you really like out of that. You can do that on the amoreequestrian.ca website, A-M-O-R-E equestrian.ca um, on the milestone page. I have bridles, saddle pads, hoodies, and like riding shirts, base layers, and short sleeves. Um, and there's also a bunch of stuff that's on sale for like pretty well reduced if you're interested in getting a deal. So I highly recommend checking that out. I also still have my merch store, shopmilestoneequestrian.com, where you can get fun like graphic tees and designs like that. And then I have my Patreon, where if you're interested in training help and like asking training questions and having access to tutorials, that's where I post a lot of my longer in-depth tutorials. There's a bunch of different training tiers you can use depending on what you're looking for. You get access to behind the scenes stuff for product development and otherwise. And you can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. All the proceeds of that go towards just helping maintain the business and helping with like little uh, things like new equipment as needed for like the podcast and stuff or just going towards the yeah, continuing to develop the brand and just helping out with that um, and helping yeah for like revenue to just keep making the tutorials and whatnot because it's, it's very busy and it's uh, a lot to do on my own. So the Patreon is a really helpful way just to support me and my brand and the podcast and stuff uh, for low price. I also have a PayPal tip jar, which is paypal.me slash milestone equestrian. And you can just donate there via like PayPal or otherwise. And again, that just goes towards the podcast and whatnot. I also do online training consults. If anyone's interested, you can check that out on my website, milestoneequestrian.ca under services. Um, so yeah, all that's there. I highly recommend checking it out. And thank you again, everyone, for your support. I really appreciate it. And I couldn't do it without any, all, all of you, I would say, without you, you in general. So um, yeah, thank you for listening. And I hope everyone has a splendid day and is enjoying themselves. And if you do decide to try my products, please let me know how you like them. My favorites right now are the short sleeve riding shirts. Those are the ones I'm the most excited about personally. But there's a lot of really nice stuff coming out. And there's a couple new colors also arriving in store. So yeah, please, please check that out. Share with your friends, share my pages. Uh, I appreciate it all. Thank you everyone and have a great day.